Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci-Fi's and the Magicians, and welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Podcast. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, the Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives with episode five, Apocalypse Now, and episode six, Oops. I did it again. It's a double feature. Apocalypse Now was written by Mike Moore and directed by Shannon Coley. IMDb is giving that one a 7.8. Oops, I Did It Again was written by Hilary Benefiel and directed by John Scott, and IMDb is giving it an 8. The critics say, as a double feature, this supersized Night of the Magicians was able to bring all the characters back together for a delightfully sleep-deprived moon rock adventure. (laughs) Well said. So obviously the majority of the action takes place in episode five, where we have what's akin to a heist adventure. There's a lot of laughs because the group has to stay up for five days with no sleep. And we bring in a lot of different magical elements that we'll talk about in new faces and places. I think Penny and Josh were hilarious in those episodes. Penny with his muffins, how he just keeps eating them. Oh, he's addicted. And he's got the bag. To the mess muffins. muffins. Josh with his untimely movie quotes, which is totally me. I love his Lord of the Rings portion that he puts into the speech. And my axe. I just thought it was hilarious. And then the release the Kraken. Yeah, but I thought Penny was once more criminally underutilized. Yeah, I think he's being underused this entire season, pretty much. They mention yet again that they're going to uphold his teaching contract, as well as make him coach of the Welters team. And I'm really hopeful they're going to show some of this. It's kind of being brought in as these sidebars right now. You mean him teaching? Yes. Me too. But at the same time, I feel bad for him because she just she's just, oh, by the way, they need a coach and it's going to be you. And I thought Lipson was a cool teacher. All of a sudden, she's kind of a tyrant, it seems. She's acting Dean, so maybe that changes things. But even the part where they decide to travel Penny to the moon, an option that might have actually worked if he'd had his powers up and running. They're so blasé about the fact that this is a really bad idea and it's played for comedy that he comes back in pieces. Yeah. I think it would have been horrible, but it landed correctly because of the speed that they were doing it. It worked for me. But now we know why they took away his powers, because episode six would have been moot if he had those powers. Perhaps. A lot of the ideas, though, that seemed really good just didn't pan out for one reason or another. You know, I think we go through that loop something like 10 times with unsuccessful, varying magic or spells they attempt. And that is the bulk of episode six is this Groundhog Day type of scenario where we repeat the loop over and over. But I think it actually landed much better for me as an episode because we were doing some of that deeper character work I've been longing for. When we get it this season with Alice and now a couple of times with Elliot, I think it's a lot more impactful. The idea of Charlton returning, which frustrated me initially and still kind of does, It seems obvious they were teasing a potential monster return, and they have to know that's going to hit an emotional point for us viewers. Yet Charlton being, in a way, like Elliot's subconscious, that's brought more to the fore. He says, well, I moved more to your conscious now. Forces him to reckon with a lot of this stuff he's been pushing to the side. And I enjoy watching Elliot go through the emotional journey and finally open up to Margot at the end. Absolutely. I think this is what Elliot needed. He has realized that that Margot has changed as a person. She has grown. And Elliot has not. And it's not necessarily his fault. He was battling his own demons. Literally. (laughs) Well, as was she, though. And she went through being banished and facing all the things she did out in the desert, trying to save Fillory. But that helped her to grow. Right. She's just been utilizing those experiences to develop her character, where Elliot hasn't been acknowledging a lot of this. He's been stuffing it down. It's been really repressed. He's not talking to people about it. It's killing him. There's a point at this episode where you can literally see him drinking himself borderline to death. Yeah, I think the difference is what Margot was going through, she was able to overcome and do things off of it and go on these trips, you know, one of our favorite episodes of last season. So she was able to grow from that. Elliot, during the whole time, was literally taken over 
and he couldn't do anything about it. So it's not like he grew from being the monster. I hear what you're saying, but even prior to that, the entire time they were in Fillory, when they were on the quest for the Seven Keys, I don't think he was utilizing any of that for his own personal self-discovery. And I, I think his interactions with Fen say a lot, even up through the beginning of this episode, and I want to talk about that when we get there. I think a part of him has known it, and he's just been afraid because this is really difficult stuff for him to have to face. And that's why the conversation with Josh is so impactful, where he tells him what he's been needing to hear. You have to let it out of the closet. What you're most afraid of, you have to face that monster if we're going to change anything. And I like that they give you the flip side because Margot really hasn't been paying a lot of attention to Josh. Well, she's been avoiding him actively because she's scared of having that conversation. But it is always Margot who's coming in to save them. We get that nice line from Fenn a couple episodes ago. I thought it would be Margot to, mm-hmm. to come and help me, to help Fillory. But here, Josh says, I know you'll figure out a way to fix this for us. So before we get into our overview of the important events, let's talk new faces, places, and magic. We met the lunatics, or the lunar fanatics, a representative here being Reba, and they are moon worshippers. I really enjoyed the play on words, the double entendre, the lunatics. It's those clever jokes, those clever innuendos that I've always loved about the magicians. Well, they explain that in the Middle Ages, people thought insanity was caused by changes in the moon, thus the wording, and this group of followers claimed to be able to achieve a connection with the moon and perhaps even move it. Most people still think they're insane today, we hear. We also get Oren Westbrook, a lunatic himself, who is a billionaire with a moon rock. Huge surprise, we meet Natasha, who's... Mayakovsky's daughter? I was really hoping. Once we saw the previously on, and we saw Mayakovsky being brought up, and then as the story started to unfold and they started to bring up Mayakovsky, I was super ecstatic to see him again. We've been waiting for this, hoping, but we didn't. We even go to Break Bill South. I have in my notes, really? We don't actually get to see Mayakovsky? And we see Natasha only for a few minutes. There's also some bigger questions where that's concerned. She tells Julia and Alice in order to help them, she's going to need one of their shades as payment. Mm. I mean, this is a massive deal. Mm -hmm. And we don't actually get to see who's if either. I mean, it doesn't appear after that either of them are missing a shade. No, and we do have a clatcher that clarifies that for us. So when we get to that point in the synopsis, I'll bring that up. Well, and also we have the whales. Due to a pact made with an old god, they spend their lives tracing sigils into the ocean floor to keep the kraken dormant. And we'd wondered, since we saw the opening credit scene of the wall with all the images on there, the kraken was front and center, how it would come into play. Not a lot of background, it just says if awakened, it would consume the world. For magic, we got Moonbrain, a state where you can communicate with the moon and read her aura, achieved by not sleeping for five days. The Dean Vanishment Protocol, which gives us appointment of a new acting dean, and a bunch of different magic, including Vinola's Oxygen Saver, the spell they try to use on Penny to send him to the moon. Well, we're going to try to run quickly through our supersized plot, starting with Episode 5, Apocalypse Now. We have Zelda explaining to us exactly what's going on here. I like her being the one to give information. She says the harmonic convergence is a perfect alignment of the planets which increases magical intensity. And as we suspected, if you move the moon, it changes the alignment and averts that scenario. The issue here is the moon has properties that magic doesn't work on it. However, it's the only celestial body they stand a chance of affecting, so they have to try. The consequences, she warns, it's impossible to know what magic or circumstances will be like once they move it. And at the end of the episode, it doesn't seem like anyone's freaking out. They don't have magic. They don't really tell us. Well, I think now that the moon was moved, it's moved back now. Ah. It's back into place. It just had to move during the time of the convergence. That would make sense. Because it does seem like everything on Earth is fine. That's not the problem. We'll come around to that. But it's kind of funny and really fun to listen back to our podcasts, especially episodes one and twos of any show that we cover, where we try to guesstimate what's happening. And obviously, we know nothing. Looking at the opening title sequence, it looked like there was whales floating in air. And the moon, we knew that it had something to do with the moon because of the poster and the fact that there was a moon there and this kraken. So we were thinking that we were going to see magic freaking out fish flying in air in the air and like you thought that oh okay (laughs) well i thought they were gonna have innate magic such as those we've seen with the dragons 
underwater. And it turns out the whales do. They do, yeah. They're not um, particularly helpful, but they wind up doing the big job of releasing the kraken. It's just that we don't, we get them on a TV screen sort of talking to us. We don't get to see any of that magical interaction underwater. And I also thought the moon would affect tides and such in the ocean. And that might be our glimpse there, but that's not really a factor. But we were right about the alignment yes, on we the planet, were. so that's cool. And actually, uh, one of our clatchers, Josh, a few weeks ago via Facebook had mentioned that as well. Next, we see Julia and Alice go to this Maxwell Psychiatric Institution to talk to Reba. This is where she gives the information that you can't move the moon. You speak to her and ask her to move. And she won't let you speak to her unless you get moon brain. So one of us needs moon brain. Not one of you. Three of you. A single magician cannot generate enough power to reach her. So it's a cooperative spell, then? It is a sign of respect, kneecap, that allows you to see her as she truly is. If you have Moonbrain, then you will see her aura. Now it is red. But when you perform the Dianic ritual, her aura will change. If it is yellow, she's considering. If it is green, she is listening. Only then may you ask her to move. Red, yellow, green. Did the guy who invented the stoplight, was he a lunatic, too? William Potts? Yeah. Oh, cool. All three magicians must perform the ritual until the moon is listening. A warning. Once her aura is green, she may choose to listen to anyone who calls to her. So be ready. You must choose one, the strongest among you, to speak to her, like the old lunatics taught us to. When she said there had to be three magicians, I was thinking automatically the three phases of the moon. The power of three. Three is always the magic number with art and film. We get that brief scene with Lipson now as our acting dean due to this banishment protocol. Yeah, she's not taking any shit, huh? Well, and just reinforcing that Penny is indeed grounded from traveling, the effects of which come from that spell later, we see. And we also get a short scene in Fillory, where Elliot's insisting they continue to discover the Dark King's motives before they make a move. He doesn't want Margot to rush to a decision. I agree with that, too you got to be safe. Right now, they have the element of surprise. Well, and he says if they kill him and they're wrong, well, that's his they're going to have an even worse. Him. But yes, I think a lot of this has to do with the emotional aspect and mm-hmm. not necessarily being strategic and political about it. Margot is on the edge trying to avoid the Josh situation. Which played funny, and I like that. It did. We're still continuing to avoid what a lot of people are bringing up. No matter how many jokes they spin on it, it was still a serious situation that Josh had this affair with Fenn. I don't think it's quite sitting right that they're brushing it over. And Marco had some deep emotional reactions to that that were maybe a bit extreme, the blame and fault she's placing on herself. And I think that is an issue we're going to have to see her confront. But for now, we have this conversation where Elliot is manipulating Fenn into getting the information from the fairies while he's gone. You know, he's convincing her she'll be the maid on the outside. This, this is a thing in movies and pop culture. I feel so bad for her because she believes this. It gives her the confidence she needs to go out there. But on a walk, she meets a fairy who demands that Fen come with her. Fen sees this as fortuitous. Well, I was looking for fairies <laughs> yeah. anyway. But I don't know if that's going to be a great situation for her. Well, I don't perceive the fairies being bad guys again, but I think they're going to be stressed out. They're going to be a little intimidating, like always. Um, But we will be fighting for them. Just an educated guess. And I'm truly excited to find out more as this story unfolds. Well, whatever's going on with them must tie in with the Dark King and this apocalypse that's impending, we now know, for Fillory, right? I mean, he must know about it. The Dark King? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he does. It might have something to do with the fairies. We have to find out why this dark king is hunting them. Mm-hmm. Fillory is usually the place in the plot line I'm most excited about. And for the most part, of course, that is when we get the Elliot Margot duo. Mm-hmm. It tends to be my favorite. They're temporarily on Earth. But I'm eager to see that now because it seems the focus is going to shift really soon. Back to our group. They are now attempting to stay awake for five nights, 132 hours with no magic. Margot thinks they could use some cocaine, but Josh's answer is coffee and muffins with a secret organic Organic stimulant stimulant. is not meth. Definitely not meth. (laughs) Gotta love that. The whole time I was thinking, no sleep. Oh, that's our world. We have no sleep. Not this bad, obviously. 
No, but I do like that they're going through some actual symptoms people would experience. And thus, make sure you stay tuned for our closer look at the end where we will cover what actually happens to you when you go this long without sleep. One day, two days, three days. What are the effects? Also in her research, Alice discovered some, some moon rocks that NASA brought back after the Apollo missions, and they were given out as gifts. They went missing because people forgot about them, so they're trying to track one down to use for their sacrifice. Unfortunately, they're unsuccessful, and upon return, Margot finds that Josh fell asleep. So he's out of contention to be one of the three. My bad, but I think that's a happy accident because I was thinking right away there's so many of them. There needs to be at least two that get their sleep and they cycle off. So when one's sleeping, the other one's awake, keeping everybody else awake and vice versa. Because you need to have two people with their wits about them and also keep them awake, everybody else. Yeah, but you have to have three. Yeah. So if automatically you take two out of the running and something happens to one of those three, there's always a danger. One of them's going to fall asleep. They're really worried about that occurring. You don't have this other magician that could step in. Mm. So I think initially they were all going to try to go in for the running. Yes. But whoever drops out becomes the pep man, such as Josh is being (laughs) now, squirting water guns in their faces, cooking muffins. Penny absolutely loves. (laughs) Margot's thinking, at worst, if they can't figure out how to fix this, they could all just go over to Fillory. But Julia is determined to stay and fight. I have to make a note here that I think Julia is being hurt by some not-so-great writing this season. It feels like they're trying to put her more into center position, a place that we are missing after we lost Quentin. Mm -hmm. And she's the one trying to be the glue, band the group together, keep them focused on the task. I like her for that, but I don't exactly think it's being directed right. I mean, she's got some really tropey statements here that just aren't landing for me. Like, we're going to go save the world. We just need to fight. I don't know. I think that her character could be really served by a change to this role. It just hasn't happened yet. But the group does get rallied behind the idea, and they continue the search where they discover this guy, Oren Westbrook. And they're going to go try to see him to take his moon rock. First, though, separating from the group, Katie's off on her own search. She convinces Zelda to help find the depository before moving the moon can screw up magic. This is a chance to repent, she tells Zelda. Katie's upset. She finally confesses Fog is stuck in the etheric realm. She feels like it's her fault. Zelda says if the Emperor kept Fog behind, it was because he sensed a flaw in him. And if he kicked you out, it was because you were trying to do something good. Nothing bores him like goodness. Yeah, how do you know that? I spent three years there once. Jesus. Before I came to the library, my life was difficult. The etheric realm was an escape. How did you get out? I stopped hating myself, eventually. And then the Emperor grew bored with me. Whatever kept Henry there, those are his demons, and that is something you couldn't fix. Well, it doesn't stop me from feeling like shit about it. The fact that you feel like shit That is why you escaped. So allow me to be blunt. Don't waste time on self-pity. Do what you came to do. I enjoyed Zelda's comments here. I thought they were very telling of Zelda, especially considering that we didn't really know much about her except for her mistakes in life that we've seen her take and the fact that she loved the library. But there's so much more to this character and this woman that we're not even scratching the surface. This was a nice window into that. And then in return, she also drops a a bit of really heavy and good knowledge for Katie. I like the way that they unfold those discoveries slowly. I think... Me too. She's by far and away one of the best characters The Magicians has written. I enjoy that there's a lot of power to her that's not a catch-all. They kind of remind us of that in this next scene where they do locate the depository. They go inside and Zelda's the one who can retrieve the book mm-hmm. so easily. She says, oh, I don't like to brag or show off. She's a master magician. She is a master magician. That needs to be something that becomes important eventually in the storyline, especially now that she's at least working in tandem with our group, not so much teamed up with them. But a question that's always weighed on my mind since season three is what happened to Harriet? her daughter, with the massive events in the mirror realm where it seemed like she was stuck there. Yeah. And that was something heavy for Zelda. 
Now, she makes this really weird offhand comment after they get the book. She tells Katie she's going to take it back to Harriet right away. Oh, I didn't even catch that. It was so quick. And if I'm mistaken, please, somebody let me know. But I listened to it twice, and I'm pretty sure that's what she said. This is quickly overshadowed because you realize somebody's watching them and tailing them. But if that's indeed true... Is she still in communication with her? Are we going to get to find out what happened? Oh, I hope so. Back to the group. We're on 124 hours with no sleep now. Eight hours until the convergence. Visiting the home of Orin, Julia and Elliot try to convince him they're lunatics too. He quickly realizes this is a lie. Julia's eye tattoo is illusion magic, and he kicks them out. However, that's what they planned on. Alice was able to get enough information in the meantime to map the house for the heist. Via the best bitches necklace. Yes. Meanwhile, Elliot is hearing this, this voice calling out to him, whispering to him, being very ominous and creepy. There's notes that seem to be written in blood that say, let me out. <laughs> and the longer he goes without sleep, the worse that's getting. Everybody's noticing it. In fact, we have a great scene where Julia pulls him to the side. We don't really get a lot of Julia Elliot interaction, so I thought it was kind of strange that she's the only one. You know, you're going to get Margot later, but realizing this is a problem, somebody should talk to him. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm wondering if that's the lack of Quentin and she's sort of stepping into that role that he would be the person to go and ask Elliot. It's framed here that she says she can relate because while the sister was only in her for a brief time, she's still having flashes of that. So it must be so much worse for Elliot, who had the monster with him much longer. But right now, he's still denying it. And they're left with this issue. The moon rock that Orin has has a bond on it they've never seen before, created by none other than Mayakovsky. So that takes them on their little jaunt to break Bill South. Now we go to 131 hours, no sleep, <laughs> only one hour until the convergence. They're getting ready to enter the home for the heist when Margot also tries to question Elliot. He's insisting he's fine, but as you said, the voices are getting worse. The group sneaks inside the party and they start to loop the cameras, but they're discovered by the head of security. He holds Margot, Penny, and Josh for questioning and they go after Natasha, who's gotten in a van to leave. Only to discover it's actually Katie. They're thrown off and it seems the rock was taken but that was just illusion magic. So while they're busy with the chase, Alice, Elliot, and Julia sneak back into the room to perform the spell. So something we skipped because we're trying to truncate everything is when they did go to Break Bill South, it wasn't Mayakovsky there. It was actually Natasha. And she was saying, that was my spell. And it looks like she has Mayakovsky's uh, oomph about her too because she basically signed her name, Mayakovsky, in the whole... In a very ostentatious manner, yeah. according to Alice. And we had wondered after this, once we saw this scene, well, oh my goodness, did someone give, the, give up their shade? And we've gone through this before. We know it's not a good thing to do so. Well, one of our clatchers caught this as well, and I really like what they're saying, and I think they're right. So Trees in Snow wrote to us and said, this was not super clear at first, but they did it all without that person's help. So no one gave their shade. That was Katie the whole time using illusion magic, and the others used phosphomancy to hide the rock instead of stealing it. This is why they didn't actually steal the rock, because they couldn't. They performed it in the home. I guess I just thought they still needed to get through the bond to do anything with it, including casting a spell on it, because they're oh. going to have to disintegrate, basically get rid of that rock. Mm-hmm. So you would think a bond is there to protect it from being moved, damaged, anything. Like How were they able to get through it to cast on it? Well, the moon was open right there. So they, they were casting on the moon... And then once the moon was listening, they were able to use that rock. They were, I think what they said was they were casting on the rock, which was like creating this communication between them them and the moon, because a true moon rock is actually a part of her lunacy, as Reba Hmm. explains at the beginning. It's a piece that is going to be destroyed through this sacrifice. So, I mean, you could be right. Maybe it is just moving it, but that feels like a little... Too easy? Wonky, that you you could not move it, but you could destroy it. It's cool. You don't need to get through the bond for that, knowing how strong Mayakovsky and thus his daughter would be with magic. It just felt like a hole to me. Well, maybe we're over-explaining it, and maybe they did give up their shade. We just don't know yet. But I, I had assumed, especially after reading what Trees and Snow said, that that bond was only preventing them from moving it from the house. 
That could be. And it certainly does not seem that anybody is missing a shade, which would be pretty obvious. If that's the case, though, I just would have liked a tiny bit more explanation. Um, I don't know about bringing in such a beloved character like Mayakovsky and introducing his daughter just for it to be something we don't use. The topic of a shade, which is in the past been a big deal. Again, just to be like, well, we're not actually doing that. At that point, if this is the explanation, I don't know why we had that scene, period. For an Ocean's Eleven type misdirect, I think. I, I think the show needs to be careful of how many big things, especially stuff that we've done in the past, being brought in in quick succession to create excitement, but it doesn't actually relate to the storyline. This has been a problem that I've had with the show previously. Even when they bring stuff in that's not new and they remix it, I think they need to manage how they handle that. And when it's done well, it's really good. But this episode in particular feels like this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. And a lot of it doesn't wind up coming full circle. And I think that leaves people a little bit confused and kind of wondering, well, why Mayakovsky then? You know, instances like that where we have to fill in the gaps. Well, that character might come back into play. I truly hope so. And she was it's, cool. it's been a long time without him. So I'd really like to see him again. I know. As you mentioned, though, the rock is not moved. Alice, Elliot, and Julia are able to start casting on it until the aura eventually does turn green, but quickly switches back to red, and they realize Elliot has wandered off after the voice. So this is when we start saying, God damn it, Elliot, what the hell, man? <laughs> but he does make up for it later. And we get that intense scene where he's looking in the mirror saying it. There's no way we banished you to the seam. Quentin died for this. You know, what would that mean if he wasn't gone, that Quentin sacrifice? Oh, we'd be pissed because... I know, but again, there's a part of me going, that's really good storytelling when I thought the monster wasn't actually gone because we didn't get a full background for him. Him and his sister were intimidating enemies. And I did have some questions about the seam remaining after last season. You know, it's the mirror world, which we've kind of seen in the past. I really liked the visuals on that. The fact that everything we do for the good has some negative consequences. There certainly would have been a lot of pushback against it, but I see a direction where that plot line is incredibly layered and complex. I'm wondering why the reflection was the monster if it was just Charlton. Well, again, you have to do some kind of stumbly writing to explain it later. You know, that twist kind of idea. Oh, it wasn't. It was just Charlton all along. Don't worry. And why were you writing stuff in blood? Like Elliot's even asking him, which, (laughs) dude, like none of this makes any sense. And they're just playing it off that, oh, he doesn't know. It's kind of dopey. The only aspect of that I do like is stuff like him looking like the monster because it's still Elliot. And uh, the majority Mm -hmm. of what he's dealing with is exactly what Margot says, his own memories, his own fear that yeah. he hasn't confronted. True. Talking about the man in the mirror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Asking him to make a change. Well, now that this spell fails, we get Margot, Penny, and Josh still being questioned when the guards are knocked out. The man that's been following them turns up, led by Marina. Turns out she put them all asleep. It didn't work on our group because they're on magic muffins. <laughs> so Marina's back. We had brought her up. Us and our clatters. And she's there to stop them because she needs the convergence to happen, to boost her critical mission. I'm interested in this storyline, and maybe the problems on Earth aren't gone this season because Marina's still out there. But I'm also wondering why Marina is in this timeline. This timeline, Marina was killed. And I had thought that the Marina other last season. Timeline, went back. Marina, I think she came here and she was initially thinking about another relationship with Katie, and we didn't really know maybe where she, didn't she went. Go back. I just, maybe I remembered wrongly that she went back, but you might be right. Anyways, it's probably just, we're misremembering. Too much going on. No, I think it can only be that timeline, Marina, because we don't have the other one. So either way, she's back here. The question is, what is her critical mission? Yeah. What is she trying to solve that she's willing to give up the world? We don't hear at this moment because Elliot's able to sneak in from behind and start casting on the rock on his own due to the surge in magic. When Marina realizes, she begins casting against him. So between the two of them and the surge in magic, magic essentially explodes within the room. And bottom line, the moon cracks apart. (laughs) They split it apart. Now we know where that poster came from and how it cracked. 
And one of our Clatchers actually asked Sarah Gamble about that scene. So Nathan wrote to us saying, When I saw this season's moon promo art, I thought it was a representation of the seam. How the cracks in the mirror at the end of season four loom over everyone's emotional state. Who knew it would be an actual crack in the moon? Maybe it's both. That's a good catch. Then he wrote back, update, I asked Sarah Gamble about this very thing during a Facebook AMA today. Here was her answer. She says, I love it when people's interpretations are so layered and thoughtful. I hadn't made the seam connection, but I love it. Yes, the crack is both literally what they did when they fucked with the moon and also representative of their emotional states. The key art for the season embraced the idea of kintsugi. Basically, when you fix something broken, you don't make it look like it never broke. You make the crack part of the new whole in a beautiful, respectful way, which is how I feel about the process of grieving the death of a loved one. Well, from a character standpoint, I like that description, and they have repeatedly said how much the grief is going to play a part in this season. But from a magic standpoint, that's evading the question. (laughs) Does any of this have to do with the seam? Is this all just red herring, such as the monster still being around was? It feels like that seam, a place that exists separate from the two worlds, that's Mm -hmm. just right there below the mirror world, can't be done with. It might not directly tie into the moon. I think we're done with that for now. But as a bigger plot line, I imagine we have to go back to it. I would agree with you normally, and on other shows, for sure, and this would be on our notes every week as something to keep an eye on. But knowing the way The Magicians has treated the stories for five seasons now, they move on quick. They don't dwell, they don't sometimes, unfortunately, they don't even finish some of the storylines. Yeah, once a bad is defeated, they're sort of out of the picture. So I'm just assuming that this is not actually reminiscent of that. It was basically a physical crack in the moon brought on by Marina Tug-of-Warring. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think the actual moon itself is not going to be the parallel way to get there. Although, Nathan, that's an awesome idea. Yeah, I love it. I would have loved that. But as far as the seam and its connections to the mirror world, as we mentioned before, if Harriet still is alive and in there, Mm -hmm. well, we're not done with the mirror world. So that's true. We'll see about that. Okay, it's at this point we move into episode six, Oops, I Did It Again, which opens on a news report forecasting the approaching apocalypse. The first chunk of moon debris is scheduled to hit the Earth in 12 hours. We'll hear Penny say that repeatedly. (laughs) Margot and Elliot review their code words for a disaster. Credenza, no questions asked. Inglenook, tie those fools up, toss them through the fillery portal. Shifferobe, flee to Canada. Armoire, shield up stat. Kimono. All Trying to brainstorm a plan, Julia suggests creating a massive portal in the atmosphere. And Alice works helplessly on the meta map. Katie has an idea to try the reverse entropy spell on an amplified level. They could use the next surge and cooperative magic of all the hedges. So they try it, but it fails, and debris comes crashing to Earth, killing them all for the first time. Now, Christina brought this up a few episodes ago concerned that they were going to use the same trope. Not that it was tropey the first time, but if they use it again, where all of the magicians around the world work together. Yeah, this time I thought they would not cast. That would be the cooperation that they spoke about with the Marcus sisters, who didn't actually come back in this episode. That's right. When are they coming back? Or are they even coming back? I mean, they did say if there's going to be a stand against this, they would be there. So you'd think this was the moment. But maybe they were casting as well wherever they were but i like the fact that they did go with it again and this time it didn't work i think that ended up paying off pretty well saying yes we are using this same trope but guess what this time it doesn't work also this whole time i was wondering and i was keeping a close eye on margo and josh because i was curious to see and especially when josh sneezed i thought maybe this was a clue but it wasn't i was curious to see because they're werewolves what would happen to them If the moon is messed up, if the moon's breaking, we know that the moon has an effect on them. So why wouldn't it have an effect on them if the moon's breaking up? Absolutely. Wouldn't it be cool if it undid the lycanthropy? You know, there's no more moon. (laughs) But they would have no idea, I guess, huh? If it undid it, unless it was a full moon that was breaking. Well, the next month, it just wouldn't happen, I suppose. It would also be a convenient way to get rid of that side story that I think has had some problems working in. It goes back to normal. Eventually, the moon moves and it shifts back, but that sort of permanently undid the magic. Yes. But that's only going to be the first of many failed attempts. 
Margot and Elliot wake up to the same conversation about the impending disaster and realize they're stuck in a time loop and the only ones who remember. The next plan is to avert the crisis by sending Penny to the moon, where it's easier to create a portal. As we mentioned, the oxygen saver spell works, but the entire attempt is a miserable failure. He didn't actually travel there. He's got no GPS. Well, something got messed up in the process. I'm sure that's going to discourage future attempts if he does remember. They try other things, moving the earth, holding the pieces in suspension. He doesn't remember, by the way, but there won't be any Jeez, I hope not. Well, I mean anybody. Like Elliot Elliot probably remembers that it happened. Oh, no, not Margot. Yeah, Elliot. So they realize they need to go further back in time to stop Marina and the entire breaking the moon problem. Release the Kraken! Penny suggests his acquaintance with a time machine, but upon visiting him, they see none of his time magic devices are working. So they also consider contacting Jane Chatwin, but the clock portal to Fillory is broken. Frustrated and growing anxious about the monster voice in his head, Elliot suggests going on a rager to come up with a more creative solution. Oh, remember that time it worked in the past? Margot goes along with this. The partying repeats several times, with Elliot proceeding to stronger drugs, but the voice continues. Leave me alone! I like here, Margot kind of gets fed up with it at some point. You know, this is just an excuse for you to get hammered. She says she's fed up being stuck in this Jean-Paul Sartre bullshit. (laughs) Now, that was a great call out for us as we discussed the French existentialist in detail in the last Mr. Robot season. Talking about no exit, Mm. the story where they're all existing in this kind of purgatory, they're already dead, and they realize hell is other people. They've been sent there to torment each other. Oh, that was a deep podcast. Really cool call out. But eventually, Margot thinks she's got it figured out. They need to go to Fisher Beach, lifeguard station 17. She tries to talk to Elliot again, who admits he believes the monster is still inside of him. She thinks, though, his problem is he's medicating instead of facing his feelings. So she insists he sit this one out and she'll go take care of it. It seems it doesn't work. And in the next loop, she now doesn't remember either, leaving Elliot alone to deal with the problem. So I had thought after this scene that Elliot was the key. And her leaving his side is why she no longer was in the time loop. Which I think would have been a better answer than what they actually came up with as the answer. Mm-hmm. Or I guess Josh came up with. That she just got too close to the solution, so it was kicked out of the time loop by uh, these whales that... That doesn't make sense because the whales needed a solution. And they're super against this idea of releasing the Kraken. Obviously, that's going to mean the end of the world. And Elliot just kind of goes up and says, please, we really need you to do it. And they release the Kraken. Like, what? Well, I think he was able to... He definitely was able to explain it to them in a fashion where they did acquiesce. But I think they really just did not like Marco. Well, that's apparent. They're a proud species, it seems. So, And it's funny. It absolutely makes sense. But if you look at the logic of this, they've spent their whole lives ensuring these sigils remain so that the Kraken won't leave. Because should he ever awake, it's the end of the world. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, we need you to cause the end of the world to stop the end of the world. If I'm the whales, I'm going, what makes you think you know any better than us? Like, this Kraken's a danger. Yeah. Well, he should have explained it to them like we knew. Once you release the Kraken, it'll give me... 12 more hours of time, and he, it'll get, get us off this loop that we're failing because we're too late in this loop. He kind of does that, but again, if I'm a whale, and they make them out to be this more intelligent, kind of like dolphins in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the yeah. Galaxy, we know the plan, dude. You're this mere mortal who thinks they have an idea. Send me back in time and I can fix it? Even though they've failed over and over again at figuring out the solution, I just don't think I'd buy it as the whale species. But anyway, before we get to that, Elliot tries to face the monster, but when he doesn't appear in the mirror, he goes to dinner and has a talk with Josh. Josh suggests that he let it out, face the thing he's most afraid of. I'm being literal. Oh. Shit. It's worse every loop. I hear its voice. I see blood on the walls. I I see this door. It wants out. Have you tried letting it out? Why in God's name would I do that? I'm just spitballing. A lot of the time in these movies, the solution to the problem is facing the thing you're most afraid of. What if I die? What if you do? So in the next loop, Elliot finally tries to do that, 
But it's not the monster that walks out, it's Charlton. He explains when all the creatures were pulled out of Elliot's mind, he held on tight to that happy place, leaving him a passenger inside Elliot's subconscious. After he hadn't slept for five days, it gave Charlton an opening to contact him. So now he's moved into his consciousness, though he's still imaginary. He says, I often disagree with your choices, and I'd like to share my opinions. You know, I love this. Basically, it is like your subconscious or your conscience prompting you. I don't think what you're doing here is great. I'd love to tell you how to do it better. (laughs) Now you're listening to me, so let's work together. He too thinks that Margot was thrown out because she got too close to the answer. So they continue following her lead, going to that beach and locating the cabin with the TV that turns out to be whale communication. We learn they took Margot's permanence because her manner was appalling and their magic created the loop. Thus, every time the Kraken awakens, they jump back 12 hours. You know, this is part of the failsafe that their ancestors built in. When the moon collided with Earth, it obliterated those sigils, but they have another chance now by repeating this time thing to avert the catastrophe. So Elliot pleads if they could just trigger that loop earlier, they could go back to the marina moment and undo it. And the whales finally agree to release the kraken, transporting him back to the moment they enter the party. Elliot tells Margot credenza, meaning he's got a slight change in plans. And inside, Margot now sneaks in the room behind Marina, punches her out, and allows the other three to cast the spell upon the moon successfully. Katie's punches are better. (laughs) (laughs) So we've fixed it. We've averted the disaster, it seems. And returning, Elliot admits to Margot he has been pushing her away. He remembers the monster, and the memories are all bad. He's also realized he's shit without her. But she's evolved over time, becoming more of her true self, while he's remained stuck. He doesn't want her to take a step back trying to help him. She insists they're best together. And the episode ends with Todd banging on the door, (laughs) eager to tell Julia the pig dude came to him with a quest to rescue Fillory. They saved the wrong world. So we were right that we hadn't seen the last of Sir Effingham. Turns out he was still trying to find a male to suit his hero image for this quest. And of course... They're not concerned about Earth. This message they've been trying to send is because Fillory's in trouble. So it begs the question I heard some other articles talking about, does stuff like this happen all the time? Where there's near disasters in places like Earth with magic, and we're just not aware of it. But sometimes when we stick our nose in, we create a bigger problem. Like, Mm. we're going to solve this issue because Julia really wanted a quest. And yet we didn't have all the information. We made it worse. Well, it may be true because we have historical articles, historical stories like Men in Black, October Faction on Netflix. I mean, the true stories are all there. (laughs) And of course, this double-sized episode leaves us with double the questions. Are we going to come back to Penny still teaching and now being the new Welters coach? Did Zelda actually say she's taking that book to Harriet? And if so, where has she been? What's going on? Was any shade given for payment? Doesn't seem so. But if not, are we going to come back to Mayakovsky in general and get to see him again soon? And what is the impending apocalypse for Fillory? What are we going to have to do to try to stop that? I'm hoping Mayakovsky is the one that gets Penny back his power. That'd be cool. That has got to be the answer there because there's always been that connection. He's the only other one that knows about traveling. He's insanely smart. I'm sure Plum, Merritt, Chatwin, whatever the heck her name is, is going to be a part of things. And hopefully that'll be a good connection between there and Fillory and all of this time magic we've been seeing this season because it is intertwined throughout both worlds now. And if anything is a resounding theme, other than the character arcs and grief we're dealing with, it's time magic. I really enjoyed that they brought up sphincter magic again. <laughs> I thought it was so that. funny. And it reminded me when we were interviewing Arjun, when we asked him, has he been practicing his sphincter magic? Yeah, because that was a big thing in the books. And it was actually this very <laughs> complex high level of magic. Well, Jason, that's going to take us to our ratings for the episodes. And we will do these separately on a scale of one to ten surges. Let's start off with five, Apocalypse Now. For Apocalypse Now, I'm going to go eight surges. Okay, well, I definitely enjoyed this far better than the last episode, episode four, but not quite as much as the one that's going to come after this, episode six. So I'm just going to give a solid seven surges to episode five. And Chris, for Oops, I Did It Again, 
What are your ratings? Okay, there I'm going to go up to a 7.5. I can't quite go as high as an 8 because I gave that to Mountain of Ghost episode 3, which is still my favorite. I myself am going to go up again because I really enjoyed that episode. I'm going to go up to an 8.4. So Chris, I think we're doing a pretty good job with keeping this podcast from being too long and belabored. So let's move on to our Clatcher section where we ask our Clatchers via Twitter, who is your MVM? And this time... Oh no, the polling just changed for episode five. The winner changed. There's still three hours left on it. So follow us at CKC Podcast if you want to join in on all this fun. Episode five's options are Elliot, Katie, Julia, and Alice. Coming in in last place is Alice with 5.6%. It's not her episode. When you have so many heroes, some people have to take a back seat. She's had a great season so far. It was just her time to chillax a little bit. Yeah, and she was often the idea man behind the scenes here, but none of the ideas ended up panning out, unfortunately. Uh, nobody's really did until they... changed the loop. We had to go back further in time. Coming in third place with 16.7% is Katie. So she had the interesting subplot with the library depository and her interactions with Zelda that partially feels like a layover from last time because the emotional resonance was really about Dean Fogg. And I think we're going to come back to that. We'll talk more on that later, but it was just a smaller portion. And in second place with 36.4%, well, may I say falling into second place because he was first a minute ago, is Elliot. I know. I couldn't believe that he was so close. You know, I can see for this first episode... He did make a drastic mistake leaving he the crew. He messed up, and he yeah. was really stuck again in the emotional quagmire he's been going through. The emotional kraken. <laughs> well, and thus, in first place, with 40.7% is Julia. With, it changed again. Sorry, with 40%. We're <laughs> just, just going gonna to go with 40 <laughs> is Julia. Man, I can't keep up. This is a tight race. You know, she is the one that insists upon everybody staying and fighting instead of just fleeing to Fillory, which... Man, how disastrous would that have been? They flee, Earth gets destroyed, and then they realize, well, it's Fillory that's in trouble. I know, that would suck. As I said, I really like them trying to shift her into the central role. I think they're having some difficulty with quite how to do that and fleshing out her character beats. But if they can manage it better, I can see where that's going to be good in the future. And for sure, here, she's the only one maintaining her shit, really, (laughs) right? So Sherry Ava says, in episode five, Julia is my MVM. She stayed the course even when she didn't think others would follow. She forged ahead with everyone, met a lunatic with Alice, made things happen, and was successful until Marina arrived. I have to say Marina is worse than the Visigoths because she derailed an Earth-saving plan in its last step. However, it's always a treat to watch her in action. I want to say thank you to Sherry because I see everything she's been doing as, as far as tweeting about the shows that we're watching and adding us to her tweets and tweeting to the actors and creators and writers. She's helping us out tremendously. So a big thank you, Sherry Ava. We will bring you to our next lunatics meeting. I like that Percy's owner said her real MVM for this episode was Zelda, but she's not a choice. I agree. And, you know, we always talk about your weakness in voting. If Zelda was on the polls, she might frequently be my weakness where I would just have to vote for her. Be Nice says Stella Maeve was the boss of the episode, got everyone organized, worked out the plan, and kept things progressing. Also, her empathy towards Elliot and the monster problem he is facing was another avenue of healing for him. I may be speaking out of school here, but I think Stella had her baby, so congratulations. Oh, yeah, nice. And also, I wanted to uh, say this is just a fun thing. Sometimes I wish I always had a microphone on me. That would be trouble, but sometimes I wish it. Before I go to sleep every night, I put on Grey's Anatomy. That's my go-to. It's because I've watched every episode about 100 times, so I'm not enthralled enough where it'll it'll keep me awake. I kind of know what's happening, so it's soothing. Stella Maeve is on that, on an episode there. As a young kid, um, I don't know, maybe 18, 19 years old, it's amazing when I see her on screen. I'm like, oh my God, it's little Stella. So I realized my MVM for this one might have been Margot. She's not on our polls, but she does so much work in trying to help Elliot, which I think bolsters him a lot in the next episode to do what he needs to do. But barring that, despite some of the issues I have with directing, I'm definitely going to also go with Julia. I too am going to go Julia for the same reasons. And for episode six, our MVM options were Elliot, Margot, and Charlton. Coming in third place with just 4% was Charlton. 
Well, we didn't think he was going to take the win here, right? But here's this great part of Elliot's mind. We've been talking a lot about his subconscious that also gives him a push. You know, we see conversations with Julia, Josh, especially Margot, Charlton. All of those elements coalescing help him to get to that place where he faces his fears. Plus, he's just good comic relief. And in second place with 8% is Margot. Well, let's be honest. Margot helped Elliot out tremendously. The bottom almost fell out once she was gone and Elliot was alone, but because of Charlton and because of, I think, Margot pushing him to grow a little bit, it helped Elliot out. I love her banter. I love how confident she is, how strong she is, how funny she is. So, you know, Margot's always right there with me. But coming in first place with 88%, that's going to be a pole chart topper for this season, is Elliot. I mean, we've already discussed all of these amazing things, how difficult it was for him to confront that, but he saves the world. It was his episode, for sure. And he's done a lot of growing in this one. Way to go, Elliot. You kicked ass, man. Sherry Ava says, In episode six, my pick for MVM is Elliot, because he had to face his worst fear, and in doing so, was able to convince the whales to do the same. In the end, he saved Earth and is able to move forward. Though I need to say how impressive and inspiring Margot is. The best part of this is the strength of their friendship. And yeah, most of the times we would have had this as a pairing. The pairing is really so much of what does it here, that bond between Elliot and Margot. Mm. But they had such unique things. They kind of have this season for the first time, separate yeah. journeys and quests. So I'm always going to give a shout out to Margot too. Be Nice says another outstanding performance by Hale Appleman, who, with a nudge from Josh, faces the thing he fears the most, what's behind the door. Peaches and Plum says, Hale Appleman knocked it out of the park yet again. Loved him and Josh having their moment to shine and his honesty with Margot. Fantastically done. And Kelly says, Elliot is the clear winner this week, but honorable mention to Josh, who believed in Elliot even when he didn't. Love seeing Josh become a bigger player story-wise. Release the Josh in. <laughs> Josh and I love it. Double play. Well, I don't think it's even a question here. I'm also going to give my Elliot. <laughs> my MBM to Elliot. I'm keeping that in. <laughs> Elliot for me as well. And we just have a couple of quick additional Clatcher's comments. Caitlin wrote in about last episode where we were speaking of the Dark King and the possible connections. And she said, did we notice that when the Dark King used magic, it had a gray shimmer that also happens with the fairy magic? So she's definitely thinking the Dark King uses fairy magic and is somehow connected to the McAllisters, which has sort of been a prevailing theory of ours, but I didn't notice that gray shimmer feels like a visual cue. Also, we had spoken about the identity of Plum Merritt Chatwin and who the connections to her could be. So Percy's owner says, I actually think the fact we haven't seen Rupert Chatwin much makes him a very likely candidate for being her ancestor. He has a lot of unaccounted time to work with. Plus, we've been told he died... And we saw his grave, but we didn't actually see him die. First rule of storytelling, no body, no death. <laughs> Especially in a magical environment, see Umber. Which brings us to the Dark King. And it's a big if, but if we are about to find out something about Rupert, then the Dark King could be tied to him. He could be a descendant. He could be the lover the Dark King lost. He could be Rupert himself. I mean, probably not. But Rupert is a big blank space where they can write anything and not have to retcon a lot of the former story. So we had thought, you know, Jane Chatwin could be a likely ancestor for Plum because she's the one we've seen most on the TV show. But if we want to just work with kind of a clean slate, and I suppose go a little bit darker, then Rupert is still an option. I kind of think they're all still options, and it's going to be interesting to see where they go with that. So on to our closer look. As promised, we are going to talk about some of the real-life effects that happen when you go without sleep. This is really interesting. According to a 2010 review, the current world record for a person going without sleep is 266 hours, which Ooh. equates to just over 11 days. Kill me. Now, we talked about a bunch of those examples, stories of people who have gone X amount of time without sleep and have broken Guinness World Records, what happens to them. The experiment they're talking about here was with Randy Gardner. And by the end of it, he grew paranoid and was hallucinating, but reportedly recovered without any long-term effects. However, some of the ones we've discussed on our Patreon bonus, there actually was chronic effects that maintained long-term from that period of time they went without sleep. 
So this can be incredibly dangerous. Most people will begin to experience the effects of sleep deprivation after just 24 hours. In fact, the CDC claims staying awake for one day is comparable to having a blood alcohol content of 10%. Woo! Let's get wasted! So after one day, essentially you are drunk. Now, the effects of 24 hours without sleep. Drowsiness, irritability, concentration, memory difficulties, especially short-term, reduced coordination, impaired judgment, increased blood sugar levels and muscle tension, raised levels of stress hormones, such as adrenaline, and a higher risk of accidents. Now, we often go without a good amount of sleep. We don't go 24 hours without sleep, but we'll go days where we're... I'll go to work, and I'm definitely irritable. I have memory difficulties. I get stressed really easy from like an email. I'm like, God damn it, fucking... (laughs) (laughs) Muscle tension, for sure. Yeah, I've gone over 24 hours without sleep. And for sure, initially, there's almost a rush, like they're saying, of this adrenaline. And you you feel like you get this intense second wind. Yeah. Where you're feeling really good and you can do a lot. That fades quick. But then there's a crash. And, you know, a lot of these more negative things come. They say many of these effects occur because the brain attempts to conserve energy by entering this state that doctors refer to as a local sleep. During this process, the body temporarily shuts down neurons in some regions of the brain, but not others. It's trying to almost let certain parts of your brain sleep Ah. because you're not allowing it. Mm. And so I've certainly felt those effects where you just get super clumsy. You can't seem to coordinate yourself. You're knocking things over. You're trying to move quickly and yet your body's not responding. Yeah, for sure. And people who have entered local sleep may appear fully awake, but their ability to perform complex tasks will significantly decline. So I like we saw that in the episode, such as Elliot and Julia trying to talk to Oren, Mm -hmm. and it seems they're awake and they're with it, but they can't really put together a conversation or a convincing argument. And that was longer than a day. So two days without sleep. Now the effects of the deprivation intensify. Health is starting to get impacted such as high levels of inflammatory markers in your blood. A person's cognition will worsen. They will become, they will have impaired judgment, even slurring of speech. So it seems like they're drunk. And the brain will actually start entering brief periods of complete unconsciousness known as microsleep. Microsleep occurs involuntarily and can last for several seconds, followed by disorientation. So your eyes are open and you're awake, but you almost black out for, for a couple of minutes. And you come back, you don't really know what's going on. We see characters doing that as well. Now, three days. After 72 hours without sleep, there will be profound effects on a person's mood with reduced positive emotions and increased depression. Significant deficits occur in concentration, motivation, perception. The person will have difficulty multitasking and even communicating with others. They're now much more likely to experience hallucinations. And they have big, heavy pillows under their (laughs) eyes and their eyes are all darkened. And they look like death. (laughs) Four to five days, which is the length our magicians went. People will experience extreme irritability, hallucinations, and delusional episodes. And for sure, that's part of what's going on with Elliot. They have slowed speech, memory lapses, and extreme paranoia or confusion. I'm not irritable. Why are you telling me this? (laughs) You're talking about me right now, right? (laughs) I definitely think you're talking about me right now. Now, 6 to 11 days, which is the longest anyone's ever been documented. So that's really all the information we have. You'll start to get tremors in your limb extremities, confusion about your own identity, unusual behavior, fragmented thinking, and prolonged episodes of unresponsive, conscious stupor. Scientists argue that this is because when you go to sleep, you plug back into the computer. Because we are a simulation. The Matrix. And we are uploading information and downloading new information. When you go 6 to 11 days without the upload and download, your meat factory starts to warp out of control. Mm -hmm. That's what scientists say. (laughs) Well. I feel like we're we're having a Patreon podcast. Let's bring a little logic to this conversation. (laughs) We do know there's a ton of theories about sleep, why we need it, what it does for the brain. And yeah, we've talked about that on Patreon episodes. Really interesting. But the biggest factor is converting short-term memories into long-term memories so that the brain, like a computer, is then able to clean some of the stuff out. Clear its cache. 
So we've decided what's important, that'll go to your long-term memory, everything else will get dumped, and your short-term memory is clear to reprocess for the Mm. next day. If we're not doing that, think of a computer starting to fritz out. Everything slows down, it won't pull up correctly. If you keep egging it on, you're going to get a blue screen of death (laughs) eventually. And our brains, in a lot of ways, tend to function much like a computer. But this is really interesting. I love to see that they were taking a lot of true-to-life facts and putting that info into the episode to dictate how the characters would react. And I love the way they acted it through. They were acting sleep-deprived, on meth. Yeah, well, (laughs) that's another thing we didn't talk about, right? But no two depictions were the same as they would be with people. Yeah, you're going to react differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, oftentimes, Elliot looks like he hasn't slept in, and acts like he hasn't slept in a long time. <laughs> yeah. He's hungover. And- One more brief thing I want to mention. We did hear about Welters, and I'm assuming we'll come back around to this. We had spoken about this in earlier seasons, and it played a bigger part in the books. But it's a magician sport played on a large board or field, divided into squares like a chessboard. It was created centuries ago to give the students of magical schools an alternative to dueling and has since developed into an international championship game played between schools. It's the magical equivalent to chess, and the objective of the game is to conquer more squares than the opposing side, but each square is made of different circumstances that a magician must adapt to and solve to win. Keyword circumstances. I'm at that part in the book, in the novel right now, Mm. and it's very enjoyable. They're, They're practicing outside. This is so cool. I wish they went into this in season one of The Magicians, it's so cool what they're going through, and they're practicing in an outside court. I don't know what you call yeah, it. Their, yeah, their board, their game thing is outside. And it's so, I don't know, your imagination can really take over, and you're imagining as the trees from this, like, uh, what's happening is, I'm not going to give away anything. One of the spells that one of our characters does is kind of is creating this vortex, this, like, suction, I guess, and trees are starting to bend into it. It's amazing. Mm. It really lets your imagination go. Now, we have been talking a lot about circumstances, what's been going on with magical surges and all of this harmonic convergence coming up. So welters seem to be the perfect topic to get into with fritzing circumstances. Now that we've fixed this issue on Earth, I don't know that this is going to be an important point, but they did bring it up here. So I don't think it's something gonna be, that's going to be dropped. Oh, but you just made me think. Maybe they're going to bring in what happened in book one, but now it's Penny teaching these students how to do it outside, and these things occur. I think that would be an b- amazing scene to watch unfold. I definitely think some of the plot lines that were Quentin's are going to be spread around between characters now that yeah. we no longer have him, and Penny's going to get a good portion of that, which could be really interesting to see. I love it. So that's going to do it for this episode, double feature episode. Yeah, and I just want to close it out with wishing everybody and wishing you, Christina, a happy Valentine's Day. It just reminds me, because we're podcasting, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. It reminds me that uh, last year on the podcast, I proposed to you. That's right. So eventually, this is also going to be our anniversary and is up there for the world to see because it was recorded under an episode I think you titled The Question. Yes, It's on our main channel. If you want to hear... Me fumble my words. Yes, and me react emotionally, which I don't often do on a podcast. Go to our main channel and just scroll down. We've done many shows since then. You'll see it. It's titled The Question. We actually talk a little bit about relationships and stuff that is pertinent to this time of year in Valentine's Day. So that's kind of interesting to hear too. And what was really cool is we had Arjun on shortly afterwards and we talked about it with him. Yeah, he asked if we wanted him to plan our wedding, which maybe we might need a little bit more help and (laughs) a nudge with at this It's been a year. We haven't planned anything. (laughs) But thank you, as always, for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to rate and review us on iTunes. It helps for other people to continue finding our podcast. Follow us on the Insta, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you want to hear more from us, we're always over on Patreon. And if you're afraid of the spoilers, we will see you next time when we review Episode 7. For everyone still here, this section is pretty brief because we don't have a lot of information about what's coming. We know episode seven is called Acting Dean, so presumably we'll get a better look at what's going on with Lipson, 
Penny's new position. Yeah. Maybe some welters. I would love it if we saw that. I don't know if we're going to go back to fog again so soon, but it is seven out of 13 episodes. So maybe. And yet we know a big portion of this is going to be figuring out the quest now that has to switch over to Fillory. And what is the deal with this Sir Effingham? Uh, Todd is back in the picture. The preview gives us him repeating the lines of the quest, which apparently were given to him in a jingle (laughs) that he can't really remember until Julia finally just says, dude, I'm not helping with this. I'm taking it over. So enough is enough. Just give it to me. And he responds, oh, thank goodness, (laughs) because I'm really underqualified. I didn't know what I was doing. That reminds me. Do you think we're going to get a musical episode this season? Probably You know, I'm looking at the titles of the upcoming episodes, which we talked about in the beginning of the season in spoilers. After Acting Dean, number eight is Garden Variety Homicide. That doesn't sound so upbeat. Maybe number nine, Cello, Squirrel, Daffodil? Because I have no idea what that means. Number 10, Purgatory. And I don't know if that's... Nirvana? (laughs) Metaphor, but can we please have it be literal and go back to seeing some of Penny Forty? Oh, that'd be awesome. Number 11, also Be the Hymen, which is a playoff, Be the Penny. 12 is The Balls, and 13 is Fillory and Further. So more magic in store for the rest of the season. Till next time, this round's on me. This round is on me.